Annihilation. One minute at a time. Darkness falls upon humanity, and faces become terrible. Things that wanted more than there was. All our days are marked with unexpected affronts, some disastrous, others less so. But the process is wearing and continuous. Attrition rules. Most give way, leaving empty spaces where people should be. Our progenitors, our educational systems, the land, the media, the way, have deluded and misled the masses. They have been defeated by the aridity of the actual dream. They were unaware that achievement or victory or luck or whatever the hell you want to call it must have its defeats. It's only the regathering and going on which lends substance to whatever magic might possibly evolve. And now, as we're ready to self-destruct, there is very little left to kill, which makes the tragedy less and more, much, much more. Charles Bukowski, Darkness. The external landscapes are merely projections of an inner landscape. The future framing sequence. Lena in the interrogation room. Lomax in his hazmat suit before her. He just assumed correctly that Lena knew Ventress had cancer. In the regular sequence of the film, Lena does not know this yet. But as she just told Lomax, she had guessed. Second two, we are on Lomax. Lomax. And you wanted to continue? Second six on Lena. Lena. Yes. I, I did. did. Second 12, cut to. In the script, there is no framing sequence, but the next tagline is Exterior abandoned base slash rec room hut day. Lena exits the hut, wearing her backpack, carrying her gun. Dr. Ventress stands in the spot where Shepard was attacked, gazing towards the broken fence. Lena approaches. Lena, we're coming with you. Dr. Ventress glances back at Lena. Dr. Ventress, I knew you would be, but I'm glad about the others. Better we stick together. Dr. Ventress shoulders her backpack. Dr. Ventress continued. Incidentally, Lena, I just wanted to say, on top of whatever else is going here, you shouldn't worry. Lena, worry about what? Dr. Ventress, your secret. It's safe with me. Lena pauses. Lena, my secret? You're talking about my husband. Lena lowers her voice. Lena continued. Is that not our secret? In that you were the one who instructed me to keep it? Dr. Ventress shrugs. Dr. Ventress, by all means, if that way of seeing it is helpful to you. Dorinson and Raddock appear at the door to the rec room hut. Dr. Ventress continued. Calls. Are we good to go? Thornson makes no reply. In the film, it's exterior, swamp, day. Though we do not immediately see them in the shot, tracking right, behind some brush, and then emerging, the four-person team walk in single file. The external landscapes are merely projections of an inner landscape. They walk past two trees in the foreground covered in multicolored tumors, and a few other trees farther off have similar growths. Dr. Ventress on point, then Raddick, hood up, then Thornson, 
than Lena. In the script, as they walk, Lena becomes aware that Thornton is talking to herself. Low muttering, unintelligible. It sounds like some kind of internal private argument, unwittingly externalized. Lena watches. Lena, hey Thornton. Thornton's gaze flicks round. There's a flash of something in her eyes, something like anger, something like a lack of recognition, as if whatever she's seeing at that moment, it isn't Lena, then it's gone. Thornton, what? Lena, you okay? Thornton turns away. Thornton, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Cut to. Internal landscape. In his essay, What Are We to Make of J.G. Ballard's Apocalypse? H. Bruce Franklin describes, among other things, a couple characters from Ballard's The Drowned World. Recall, of course, that in the script for Annihilation, Lena's last name is Carrots. Quote, The embodiment of death appears in the person of Strangman, a man as white as bones, dressed in white, and considered a dead man by his crew of black pirates. Strangman is an avatar of the man of power, pride, will, and egoism who seeks to conquer nature. He appears with machinery and a flotilla of half-trained alligators to reverse the course of nature's reclamation. When he succeeds in pumping out the city of London, the once translucent threshold of the womb had vanished, its place taken by the gateway to a sewer, and London again resembles some imaginary city of hell. Strangman's nemesis is Dr. Robert Cairns, the protagonist, a biologist, isolated, quietistic, impotent, too passive and introverted, too self-centered to take command of the situation. Karens seeks to swim back into his own drowned world of my uterine childhood to recapture the amniotic paradise, to merge with both sea and sun, to become the new Adam. In the end of the film, of course, Lena is a sort of new Eve. He does succeed in destroying Strangman's work, in flooding London once again, but then he leaves his symbolic Beatrice behind to lose himself in an endless self-destructive lone odyssey. Through the increasing rain and heat, attacked by alligators and giant bats, a second Adam, searching for the forgotten paradises of the reborn sun. The drowned world formulates the trap in which Ballard has been thrashing around ever since. To comprehend the larger relevance of his predicament, let us look at some difficulties posed by his symbols and characters. First, we must recognize that Karen's quest is, at bottom, destructive of all human relationships and ultimately suicidal. In seeking to merge with the sun and the sea, he renounces his humanity in all senses. His quest for the sources of life is, in the last analysis, a search for death. On the other hand, Strangman, the symbol of death in life, is actually working, whatever his piratical intentions, to reclaim part of the planet for humanity from the alien forces of nature. So Karens and Strangman are yoked as opposites in a larger unity of life and death, which I think Ballard wishes us to perceive as a yin-yang. On the literal level, this involves a psychological doubling. Karens descends in a diving suit into the drowned London planetarium, sees himself in a mirror, and involuntarily shouts, Strangman, at his own reflection. Strangman understands Karen's quest so deeply that he turns it into a sardonic joke. At times he would subtly mimic Karens, earnestly taking his arm during one of their dialogues and saying in a pious voice, You know, Karens, leaving the sea 200 million years ago may have been a deep trauma from which we've never recovered. While looking at Karens in the diving suit, Strangman responds, parodying the author as well as his projected character. It suits you, Karens. You look like the man from inner space. The rictus of a smile twisted his face. But don't try to reach the unconscious, Karens. Remember, it isn't equipped to go down that far. When he does dive, 
Karen subconsciously tries to lose his identity in the water and the drowned image of the heavens in the planetarium by killing himself. He blames his brush with death on Strangman, but it is actually Strangman's men who save him from himself, only to attempt to kill him ritually later on, as they crucify him as an embodiment of Neptune. Stepping away from Franklin's take on Ballard, consider a moment ahead. Lena in the lighthouse, like Karen's trying to lose himself in the water, losing herself in a fight with an alien mimic, and she must, as it were, kill herself. Back to Franklin. Quote, the fundamental paradox here is that Ballard's quietistic, suicidal, nature-loving hero is actually another avatar of his Wagnerian superhero. In fact, his mission is even more cosmic, his hubris more presumptive than that of Strangman. One might compare this relationship at length to that between Ishmael, the would-be suicide who seeks to lose himself in the ocean, and Ahab, who defies and seeks to master nature. But there is a profound difference between Melville's art and Ballard's that has to do with basic values. Despite all the carnage and death in Moby Dick, that book affirms life and the ties of loyalty and trust which bind human beings together and which it is madness to sever. Despite all the yearning for life in Ballard's fiction, it is ultimately a literature of despair, negation, and death. Karen's impulses, however cloaked in fantasies of embodying the sun and the sea, are merely another form of the madness incarnated by Faulkner in The Overloaded Man. Karen's, and through him his author, is expressing a dying society. Ballard, of course, knows this. What he means by the surreal or superreal is the psychological condition which he himself partly incarnates. The symbols of our age are for him its most horrifying historical events, and the progress of his fiction is largely into a deepening exploration of the psychological content of these events. The nuclear bombs of love and napalm were already the annihilating symbols of the Terminal Beach, 1964. The auto crashes of Crash and Concrete Island were just as universally final in The Impossible Man. In The Drowned World, he explicitly states his unifying conception of historical and psychological events. Just as the distinction between the latent and manifest contents of the dream had ceased to be valid, so had any division between the real and the superreal in the external world. Phantoms slid imperceptibly from nightmare to reality and back again. The terrestrial and psychic landscapes were now indistinguishable, as they had been at Hiroshima and Auschwitz, Golgotha and Gomorrah. My criticism is that Ballard does not generally go down far enough below the unconscious to the sources of the alienation, self-destruction, and mass slaughter of our age. He therefore remains incapable of understanding the alternative to these death forces, the global movement toward human liberation which constitutes the main distinguishing characteristic of our epoch. The real nemesis of militarism, exploitation, and the rape of the environment is not the insane overloaded man who is seeking to be free by obliterating the entire world, nor the suicidal quietist, such as Dr. Robert Cairns in The Drowned World, Dr. Charles Ransom in The Drought, or Dr. Edward Sanders in The Crystal World. Nor is it the main figure of love and napalm, a doctor trying to cure the world by rearranging its pieces. Nor Robert Maitland, the architect in Concrete Island, who maroons himself amidst British freeways. Nor James Ballard, the revealingly named narrator and protagonist of Crash, the only novel narrated in the first person, whose greatest pleasures are one, looking in the rearview mirror to see the man of power, Vaughn, the hoodlum scientist copulating with Ballard's wife and then beating her, two, having anal intercourse with Vaughn, and three, finally arranging to follow Vaughn's leadership by killing himself, together with at least one attractive woman in a car crash. Beyond the scope of Ballard's death-worshipping imagination are the people rescuing the world from the state of being that determined that imagination. End quote. 
Dr. Ventress, second 22, new angle, closer and somewhat behind. She turns a good 30 degrees to her left and heads away from camera. Raddick comes into frame, hood down now. Ventress puts her right hand down, suddenly stopping. She's seen something just ahead. In the script, then Raddick sees it too, puts a hand over her mouth. As Lena reaches them, reveal. Crushed undergrowth, forming a trail into the trees and along it, unmistakable splashes and smears of blood on the leaves. Raddick. Shepard. Dr. Ventress. Very likely. In the film, Raddick slows, and we angle from in front of the group, second 28. Thornton leans to the side to see what is ahead. Ventress slowly moves forward, one careful step after another. Second 34, close behind Ventress. She takes up most of the left side of frame, shoulders down to knees. At the bottom center of frame is a boot and a trail of beaten grass next to a small group of white sunflowers. Ventress moves forward, ducking below a small branch. Raddick follows her duct tape pack on full display. Note, Raddick no longer has a yellow tent bag attached to the bottom of her pack, nor does she have any of those solar chargers attached anymore, though she is the one who uses the most electronics in the group. Ventress stops to the left of the boot. Raddick pushes that low-hanging branch aside and stops on the right. Thornton heads around to the left and is about to pass Ventress as we cut second 43 to the group from the front, and Thornton already stands in a position past Ventress. Lena approaches, framed smaller, between Raddick now on the left and Ventress on the right. Lena arrives and slows to a stop. She starts to turn and we cut second 51 to angle low from behind Ventress on Lena turning around. Raddick holds with her right hand something wrapped around a finger on her left. Lena takes her rifle in both hands and crouches by the boot, below frame. Camera drops slowly to reveal, in case we could not see it before, that the boot has viscera and dried blood on and coming out of it. We can hear the buzzing of flies. The external landscape to the projections of an inner landscape. Beat. Lena, she could still be alive. Lena looks up toward Ventress, and we cut back to the previous angle. Lena framed now larger, but lower, between Raddick and Ventress. Dr. Ventress, it's highly doubt, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Thank you.